This podcast is brought to you by EverythingVoluntary.com. My name is Skylar Collins, and this is Thinking and Doing. In this podcast, I examine logical fallacies, cognitive biases, stoic teachings from masters past and present, and tips on being better at life. I hope it will be as instructive to you as it is to me in the pursuit of thinking and doing well. If you'd like to kick back a small commission from every Amazon purchase you make at no extra cost to you, please use and bookmark our special link at AmazonEVC.com. That's AmazonEVC.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. In this episode, we're going to look at the fallacy of accent, and then we'll look at expectations as a cognitive bias. All right, for the fallacy of accent, we're going to use the rationalwiki.org. I'll link to it. Um, This seemed to be a pretty good resource, better than my typical, so I went with this. All right, it says the fallacy of accent occurs when the meaning of a text is changed by what word or words are stressed. And either, one, a word different than the author's intent is stressed, or two, it's unknown which word should be stressed. The meaning of a word or set of words may be drastically changed by the way they're spoken, without changing the words themselves. The fallacy was first coined by Aristotle, who pointed out that a word with one spelling could have different pronunciation and different meaning, which effectively created multiple words. Because the written Greek of Aristotle's time had no diactrical marks, it was occasionally impossible to tell the author's intent. It is an informal fallacy and a fallacy of ambiguity in that it removes context that is necessary to understand the statement. All right. Um, I don't think the English language has very many words that are spelled the same but mean totally different things. I mean, you have, I want to eat a fish, let's go fish, right? One's an action, one's a noun or one's a verb and one's a noun, um, that's not really a question of accent, right? You could probably generate some kind of fallacy with that particular example. But my understanding is in a lot of other languages, there are words that if you just change the accent in which you speak it, it can mean a totally different word. I don't know how common that is. Maybe it's more common in some language and less common than others. I don't think it's very common at all in the English language. So when this fallacy is committed in the English language, it's a matter of what I did just there, <laughs> right? When we, when, we, when we stress or we emphasize or we accent particular words in a sentence, right, we're trying to put focus on them. And given a particular sentence, if we focus on one word over another, it changes the meaning of the entire sentence. It changes possibly the meaning, but also the intent of what we're saying. And as I'm talking right now, I'm hearing myself give accent, put stress on different words in different parts of each sentence that I'm saying right now. <laughs> when, you, when you're thinking about it and you're speaking, it kind of makes a, a, it's kind of strange. All right, so let's go look at some examples. So this is, this, th- these are six versions of the same sentence. I'm going to read them all through once and then we'll do it again and I'll 
explain the, in, the, the change in intent, the change in meaning of each one. I didn't take the test yesterday. 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 You see, so in each version of that sentence, I, I emphasized or I put the accent on the first word, the second word, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth. Okay, it's a six-word a six sentence. I didn't take the test yesterday. So now let me say the sentence with that particular accent again, and then I'll read the parenthesis which describes sort of the intent or the meaning of the sentence. I didn't take the test yesterday, implying somebody else did. I didn't take the test yesterday, implying I did not take it. I didn't take the test yesterday, implying I did something else with it. I didn't take the test yesterday, implying I took a different one. I didn't take the test yesterday, implying I took something else. I didn't take the test yesterday, implying I took it some other day. You see, same sentence, six different meanings. Somebody else did it. I did not take it. I did something else with it. I took a different one. I took something else. I took it some other day, depending on which word you put the accent on. Now, I've got to... I've got to admit, this is probably blowing my wife's mind right now. <laughs> she listens to this uh, to this podcast, and me going through um, something that is a second language for her. She's from Mexico. Her first language is Spanish. She learned English as an adult. She's uh, quite fluent at it with a really cute accent. So what I just did, and now I guess I'm speaking to her, is I went through the same sentence six times, emphasizing a different word, creating a totally different meaning, a totally different implication of that particular sentence. And it really, I mean, I didn't, I didn't personally, I didn't really, I didn't really, really realize that English can be so complicated in this way, right? I'll have to talk to her after she listens to this. I'm sure she'll make a comment to me. We'll have a discussion about it, about how difficult it is for her to catch this sort of thing. It's probably more difficult for second language, third language speakers than it is for primary language speakers. Okay, there's other examples on here. I'm going to go to a third one. It's a little less complicated to get through, and then we'll move on to the expectations. Okay, so this one asks the question, who does Amy love? And there's three versions of how she can answer using this exact same sentence, but with a different accent. So I'm going to read all three, and then I'll read the meaning of each. Who does Amy love? I don't really love you now. I don't really love you now. I don't really love you now. <laughs> all right, the first one, who does Amy love? I don't really love you now. Amy's implying that she loves somebody else. I don't really love you now. Amy is implying that her love is decreased, but still exists. I don't really love you now. Amy's implying that she feels something for the speaker, but not love. Okay, so, man, English just got a lot more complicated. <laughs> so, depending on where you put the accent or the stress or the emphasis, which word you put it on in a particular sentence can totally change the meaning. And if you're doing this in the course of making an argument, of having a discussion with somebody and trying to emphasize something to them, you could be advert advertently or inadvertently committing the fallacy of accent, 
right? And it can be it can be difficult to catch, and it's certainly difficult when when you're writing, right? When you don't have, I mean, you can italicize like they did here on this website. They italicized the one they wanted accented, so you could italicize the word you want to put the emphasis on. And I, you know, I understood what was going on when, while I was reading these. I knew which one to accent and how to do that in my mind. And of course I said it. So that's one way to make absolutely clear that the word you want to emphasize is being emphasized properly by your reader. Um, but on the other hand, I know that for a lot of professional publications, they do try, they do require the minimization of this sort of thing. So it's possible that somebody doesn't put that stuff in, you know, and without larger explanation of what's being talked about, without really investing some time and expanding the context of the argument you're making, then it could be, it could be easy to take something out of context and, you know, with your own emphasis and misquote. Um, another, I guess another aspect to this, let me just talk about here for a moment, is something you see sometimes in like advertising where somebody will put part of the advertisement in really big letters to accent it, but then they'll have some small print, some fine print kind of clarifying, right? You see this a lot with clickbait, like the big part of the headline will be revolution in China. And then in the subtitle or something that you're not likely to see right away, it'll say, is not likely to occur. <laughs> so you click it. Once you click it, they get the ad, the ad revenue. So they don't, you know, they don't care. They just want you to click it. That's, that's the purpose of clickbait. Just click it so that the ads are loaded on our site and we charge our advertisers for that. So we don't really care if you read the article. So we're going we're gonna to accent something to get you to click it, and then we'll give you the rest of it, right? So you can't call us liars, but it's not what you thought, right? That's kind of how clickbait works. Um, and it can be how some advertisements work too. It'll say, you know, free beer, but then it'll say, you know, in finer print with purchase of a mill or something like that. So it kind of gets you in and then it's, you know, and then they, they tell you the full terms of, of what's being offered. All right, let's go on to expectations. All right, we're using Rolf DeBelli's the Art of Thinking Clearly. This will be chapter 62 uh, on expectations. I'm just going to read through this and add commentary as I see fit, as is my won't. Excuse me. On January 31st, 2006, Google announced its financial results for the final quarter of 2005. Revenue up 97%. Net profit up 82%. A record-breaking quarter. How did the stock market react to these phenomenal figures? In a matter of seconds, shares tumbled 16%. Trading had to be interrupted. When it resumed, the stock market plunged another 15%. Absolute panic. One particular, particularly desperate trader inquired on his blog, what's the best skyscraper to throw myself off? <laughs> what had gone wrong? Wall Street analysts had anticipated even better results, and when those failed to materialize, $20 billion was slashed from the value of the media giant. Jeez. Every investor knows it's impossible to forecast financial results accurately. The logical response to a poor prediction would be, a bad guess, my mistake. But investors don't react that way. In January 2006, when Juniper Networks announced eagerly anticipated earnings per share that were a tenth of a cent lower than analyst forecast, 
the share price fell 20, 21% and the company's value plunged $2.5 billion. When expectations are fueled in the run-up to an announcement, any disparity gives rise to draconian punishment regardless of how paltry the gap is. Many companies bend over backward to meet analysts' predictions. To escape this terror, some began publishing their own estimates, so-called earnings guidance. Not a smart move. Now the market heeds only these internal forecasts and studies them much more closely to boot. CFOs are forced to achieve these targets to the cent, and so must draw on all the accounting artifices available. Fortunately, expectations can also lead to commendable incentives. In 1965, the American psychologist Robert Rosenthal conducted a noteworthy experiment in various schools. Teachers were told of a fake new test that could identify students who were on the verge of an intellectual spurt, so-called bloomers. 20% of students were randomly selected and classified as such. Teachers remained under the impression that these were indeed high-potential students. After a year, Rosenthal discovered that these students had developed much higher IQs than other children in a control group. This effect became known as the Rosenthal effect. Unlike the CEOs and CFOs who consciously tailor their performance to meet expectations, the teachers' actions were subconscious. Unknowingly, they probably devoted more time to the bloomers and consequently the group learned more. The prospect of brilliant students influenced the teachers so much that they ascribed not just better grades, but also improved personality traits to the quote, gifted students. <laughs> oh, man, that's that's kind of a tragedy, isn't it? But how do we react to personal expectations? This brings us to the placebo effect, pills and therapies that are unlikely to improve health, but do so anyway. Um, my understanding is they're starting to call this the placebo response, not the placebo effect. Anyway, just an aside. The placebo effect has been registered in one third of all patients, but how it works is not well understood. All we know is that expectations alter the biochemistry of the brain and thus the whole body. Accordingly, Alzheimer's patients cannot benefit from it. Their condition impairs the area of the brain that deals with expectations. Expectations are intangible, but their effect is quite real. They have, to, they have the power to change reality. Can we deprogram them? Is it possible to live a life free from expectations? Unfortunately not. But you can deal with them more cautiously. Raise expectations for yourself and for the people you love. This increases motivation. At the same time, lower expectations for things you cannot control. For example, the stock market. As paradoxical as it sounds, the best way to shield yourself from nasty surprises is to anticipate them. Well, I'm happy to see him give a little stoic insight there at the end about lowering expectations for things that are outside of our sphere of control. That's a, that's a stoic insight, which is apropos for this podcast. I like it when my episodes sort of connect that way. And the very end here where it says the best way to shield yourself from nasty surprises is to anticipate them. Now, let's, let's get into this, the stoic insight a bit for a moment. That's not what this episode is about, and I'm sure we'll touch on that particular topic, Toic. Topic, Toic. Oh my God. <laughs> I do that all the time. I think it means I'm brilliant. Um, that particular stoic topic, um, again and again, I'm sure, as, as, you know, as we go forward. But I like that. The best way to shield yourself from nasty surprises is to anticipate them. Now, we don't want to go through life always expecting the worst, right? That could be, that could be very demotivating, right? Especially when we're when we're working on something, right? Like, why would I, why would I sit down and record this podcast if I was expecting 
you know, the file not to save properly and for me to lose, you know, the last 20 minutes. I'm expecting it to work. But in the back of my mind, I understand that there is a possibility that it, you know, it won't come out correctly on the other side. Now, I've sat down before and recorded 20 minutes before realizing I never hit the record button twice. I've hit it once and that turns on the levels, which I can then test. And then I got to hit it a second time for it to start recording. And after you hit it the first time, it blinks red. After you hit it the second time, it's a solid red. So it was blinking red. For some reason, I just started going and it was 20 minutes. I glance over at it and it's still blinking red and the, the, the counter isn't moving. It still says zero. And I think I handled that better, you know, after years of studying this sort of thing, of uh, thinking about this particular stoic insight as well as all the others. I think I handled that better than I would have. You know, I didn't get angry. I didn't smash my table. I didn't turn my table over and cause my computer and everything to go flying, you know, like you see sometimes in movies when something doesn't work right. I didn't bang my table. I didn't punch the wall. I realized that particular episode will always just be in my head. <laughs> I've for totally forgotten it now. But I just said, okay, I guess today's not a podcast day. Rather than redoing it, I just turned it off. I went on with my day. Life moved on. That was a minor, you know, a minor inconvenience. It wasn't a big tragedy. But like I said, we'll we'll get into Stoic Insight in the Stoic episode. So we'll leave that for here. That was Expectations. I thought that was pretty good. And then we also, just to review, we looked at the fallacy of accent, which still kind of blows my mind that the same six-word sentence can have six different meanings depending on which word you emphasize. That's crazy. That's absolutely bananas. All right, that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening, and have a better day. Please send your comments or questions to thinkinganddoingpodcast at gmail.com. Please consider supporting this podcast at everythingvoluntary.com by visiting patreon.com forward slash EVC or paypal.me forward slash everythingvoluntary. Thank you.